Spirit who guides us in the truth is our comforter, our teacher, and we thank you that you are able. And Lord, thank you that uh, we recognize that we are uh, frail and finite beings, and yet, Lord, in your infinite power and grace, you've invited us to worship you. And what a privilege, what a joy, what a wonder that that is as you are surrounded by the perfect worship of the seraphim as they surround you day and night crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Lord, that today may we worship you in spirit and in truth. May each one here be impacted and changed and transformed because of this encounter with you, Lord Jesus, with your word and with one another. And we pray for understanding hearts and minds that we would be attentive to your word today and recognize that it is from your hand and your voice, Lord. And I am simply just the one who conveys the things out of your word today. And Lord, may we praise you and not the messenger here. And Lord, we thank you for Grace Point Church, your faithfulness through the decades. Thank you for your people. Thank you for our guests who are with us here today. And pray each one would have eyes to see your blessings. Thank you for our children downstairs, as well as in the nursery and in children's church. Lord, we pray for those who staff those ministries, that they would have a heart uh, to see you honored and glorified. And Lord, that each one would grow in your grace and the knowledge of you. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy to meet here. Thank you for our country. We do pray for our uh, political leadership and, Lord, in much turmoil and adversity that they would really have a change of heart and seek your wisdom. And, Lord, for us as believers in this country, may we have a winsome testimony of your grace and your power in our lives. Lord, we do pray for our missionaries, especially Paul Mayhew, who is uh, teaching and traveling in China. And we look forward to his return, Lord, and we pray for him for endurance, perseverance, and just wisdom as he deals with many, many different people. And, Lord, we thank you that uh, you will bring him back to us. We look forward to that time. We thank you for this day, for your word. We pray for uh, understanding and that your Holy Spirit would apply it as you see fit to each individual heart and life. In Jesus' powerful and wonderful name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome. Thank you, Wes, for the introduction to Patrick. And uh, thank you, David, for a report on uh, the GO team. And yes, some of us on the GO team are ancient, but not all of us are old. And, uh, but we would uh, really, if you have a heart for missions, and that's one thing this church has been known for and we want to continue, is to be mission-hearted, to see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up and exalted and glorified around the world. And it's exciting to think about uh, our Macau brothers and sisters coming to visit us this summer, and we're looking forward to that event and anticipating it. And so thank you, David, for giving us a heads up about that. Well, as Wes said, today is uh, St. Patrick's Day, and I just wanted to add a couple of things to that. Uh, One of the things about St. Patrick's Day is I was reading again about Patrick and about his ministry and his mission to Ireland, particularly Northern Ireland. In fact, there's a book out, I have not read it, but it said something about Patrick and how Patrick and the Irish saved civilization which is a very interesting title, I thought. Uh, But it was a major change in that culture. As was mentioned, uh, a totally pagan culture came out. Uh, I enjoy thinking about how we celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, In Chicago, of course, they pour green dye in the Chicago River for the St. Patty's Day Parade. Perhaps you've been there for that. Which begs the question to me, why can't they put blue dye in the river the rest of the year? You know, if you've been to the Chicago River, don't go swimming there. And 
Uh, that, that, that's one thing. Uh, I have to uh, talk about the green. Uh, I've got a little bit of Irish blood, but not much, according to my DNA. Uh, of course, it also says in my DNA test that I'm part Neanderthal, which was no surprise to my wife, honestly. And uh, it took her about 15 years to get me to quit dragging my knuckles, and uh, so pray for her. Uh, but uh, I was thinking back a uh, uh, St. Paddy's Day, and when I was a student at Montana State University in Bozeman, 100 miles to the west is Butte, Montana. Of course, if you know the history of Butte, Montana, the mining town, uh, it was primarily in the 1800s, many, many Irish immigrants. There's still a big Irish population there, and so St. Pat's Day is gigantic. And so some of the guys in my dorm thought it would be really cute to go over to Butte and wear orange. Well, they came home a little bit bloodied when they finally got back to Bozeman, back to the dorm, because uh, later on, after St. Patrick, green was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church, of course. And I'm not Roman Catholic, but uh, that was the adoption. And then Protestants took orange for William of Orange, who was the king of Britain or uh, the UK at that time. And uh, there was great conflict involved. But I want you to know that I am neither Roman Catholic nor Protestant. Because uh, in this church, our heritage is not the protesters of the Reformation. That would be Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc. But we are more of the Anabaptist tradition. We were persecuted not only by Roman Catholicism, but we were persecuted by the Reformers also. If you go back and read about Calvin in Geneva. And so we come out of an Anabaptist tradition, so we don't have to wear either orange or green, you know, because we were the ones who were beat up by all the other guys. And so that's where that is today. But Patrick is an interesting figure in how he went back and uh, things were changed. There are a couple of things we need to clarify. He is not a saint uh, with a big S. The Roman Catholic Church has never canonized him, even though he is the patron saint of Ireland and many other places. Butte, Montana, for one. <laughs> Uh, another thing is, when I was thinking about it, and I was going to run this by Wes, I thought we should reenact Patrick uh, chasing the snakes out of, the, out of Ireland. But, you know, in this country, the reptiles are all asleep still, and so we couldn't gather up enough snakes, and Wes would not wear the frock that, uh, that Patrick would have worn. But that's a myth also. And it's probably metaphorical of God using Patrick to drive out the pagan religions that were predominant in, on the, in Ireland at that time. And so there's a number of things. We don't know a lot about Patrick, uh, but we do know enough to know that God used him mightily in that, even though we may disagree with some of his theology. Uh, we see God's hand and God's movement through those times and those things. His missionary journeys uh, throughout Ireland, it uh, speaks of a heart that was really set towards what God wanted him to do. And I was thinking about Patrick and thinking about motives, motives. Uh, have you considered and thought about your motives in life? You know, we don't know ultimately, only God knows Patrick's heart and what his motives were for going back to Ireland. But uh, just in a historical reading, they must have been pretty pure because he was going back to a place that probably wanted to kill him and going back to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what were his motives? Why did he return to Ireland? And, uh, but more importantly, what are our motives? In other words, what does it mean to live the Christian life, and what are my motives for living the Christian life? And each one of us needs to answer those questions. Uh, 
What I found in life, anyway, is as soon as I think I've detected my motives, they're kind of slippery things. They're like trying to hold on to eels. They slip away somehow. Motives are slippery things, and we don't know the motives of another person. We can only try to discern through God's power our own motives of why we follow Christ. Why do we follow Christ? There's a sense in which, in the New Testament, those who are called Christians or have a position in Christ. Paul tells us this in the book of Romans very clearly, Ephesians, in his epistles. In fact, in the book of James, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to James chapter 1, and we're going to continue our study in the end of chapter 2. But in chapter 1, remember, uh, this is probably the most doctrinal statement in the book of James. We find it down in verse 18 of chapter 1. He's addressing believers, of course, those who have already believed in Jesus for everlasting life. In verse 18, he says, In the exercise of his will, that's the Father of lights, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'd be a kind of first fruit among his creatures, a declaration of how people have everlasting life through God the Father, through his work, through Jesus Christ. And so there's this, this, this issue that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are in a position of acceptance and a position of security and eternal life, which doesn't begin when you pass from this earth, but it began the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ for your everlasting life. And so in that sense, we are Christians. Christian, of course, just means little Christ followers. We are that. There's that present position. But then there's this sense not only of our position, but the sense of our condition. Because we live in a fallen world, our flesh is not redeemed yet. And so we live in this condition, so there is a sense in which we are becoming Christians. And that's our experience. That's called sanctification in Scripture. In other words, being set apart, progressive sanctification, being set apart under the whole, unto the holiness of God. We are in the process of being saved from the power of sin. When we go back to our justification, being declared righteous by God, we were saved from the very uh, penalty of sin. You know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's physical and spiritual separation from God himself if we're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And so there's this two-pronged thing where we are positionally Christian, but we are becoming more Christ-like. And that's what James's concern is in this uh, whole book. His concern is not doctrinal, theological, deep truth, as we see in the book of Romans that the Apostle Paul will write later after the book of James was written. Uh, But he is concerned about shoe leather faith, basically. In other words, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've put your faith in him. You have trusted in him for everlasting life. Now what? (laughs) Now what? If you're still breathing and I look around and I think everybody looks like they're breathing, You look pretty healthy here, so now what? And that's what James's concern is in this book. But from my own experience and in my own study and in in observation of other people, especially in Christendom, is the fact that there seems to be two roads that we take. And there are those who are really attracted in the idea that this is an exchange somehow. God is blessing me. God has given me salvation. Now I must work in that sense to please him. Okay, it's, it sometimes is reduced to a commercial transaction. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do these three, three things for you. 
And there seems to be, that is our tendency because it appeals to our flesh. It appeals to who and what we are. Paul writes the whole book of Galatians about that approach to spirituality. But what does that really mean, what it means to be a Christian, to become a Christian? Then the other road I see is that those who are just responding out of an everlasting, eternal sense of gratitude. And a sense of gratitude that I was lost and I was hellbound and I was, I was, I was, there was no hope for me. And yet God, but God, and the Lord Jesus Christ opened my eyes. And my own testimony is that way. The first time in my life at age 28, I understood what it meant that God so loved Gary. It's still staggering these five years later. <laughs> I'm just seeing if you're listening here. It's still staggering. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't care if you uh, believed in him for everlasting life when you were five years old at vacation Bible school or if you were 55. It is staggering. It is a miracle for sure. So James, he is really big on admonishment. And I'm afraid if you are measuring your spirituality by what you do and what you don't do, uh, that the tendency is, is that you see this as another load on your shoulders. That James is another burden because he gets right after us, believe me. He is telling us how it ought to be. And, uh, but if you see it as a load, it's going to become this commercial transaction. And I want to warn you, don't do that. Because if you are recognizing who you used to be and what God has done for you and what Jesus Christ has done and the power of the Spirit in your life, you should be eternally thankful. That gratitude that you will want to do these things that James is laying out for us. And he's going he's gonna, to uh, get very personal with us. It's like a friend of mine says that God digs around in his underwear drawer. You know, that gets personal. And he digs around in the chambers of our heart through the Apostle James here. So we come to this, and James, in this long passage in chapter 2, he is getting down to this whole issue of faith and uh, what works look like and what's the relationship with faith and works. And he warns us, beginning in verses 14 through 17, the danger of an unproductive faith. A danger of an unproductive faith. Look again at verse 14 where he says, he gets right out, what use is it? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question which expects the answer. It's of no use, okay? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And, again, we come to this whole issue. It's important. Terminology is important. And when we did an introduction to the book of James, we looked at the five occurrences of the word that are translated, four of them are translated save, and uh, one is translated elsewhere in a different way. And we'll look at those. And I said we'd look at them as we came along. And remember, this word save uh, is, uh, <clears throat> refers to salvation of people who are already born again. Remember, James is addressing those who are saved in the sense of receiving Christ as Savior, of believing in him for everlasting life in their past. These are the Jewish people, the 12 tribes that are scattered uh, about from Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And James is c continually referring to my brethren or my beloved brethren. And so this is a continuation of chapter 2, verse 1. Look at verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith 
with a, uh, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He goes on to talk about partiality, as you remember. And so he's addressing people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this use of the word save in verse 14 is not talking about initial justification. We've got to get that clear because uh, the book of James is used by many groups as proof that you have to do works in order to receive eternal life, okay? And they teach that, and many uh, around us teach that, and that is very a popular occurrence. In fact, that's why Martin Luther did not like the book of James uh, when he was uh, first saved, is because the Roman Catholic Church would use it as a hammer against him and to promote the theology of you are saved by your works, by continuing to do good works. And then verse 5 continues the discussion of believing readers. Uh, James says there in verse 5 of chapter 2, Listen, my beloved brethren. Again, speaking, by the way, brethren is not just gender specific. It's male and female when it's in the plural. And he's talking to all believers that he's writing to. And then here in verse 14, uh, what does it profit, my brethren? What use is it? And he's talking about brethren again. So he continues with the same context. James is an example. It's always true, but James is a perfect example of why context, context, context is so important when you study God's Word. And the salvation in James 2.14 is the same kind of salvation believers uh, of believers as in chapter 1, verse 21. You know, faith alone <clears throat> cannot save a believer from temporal judgment of God. That's what James's point is. Remember, through James, he is telling us that there is temporal judgment or temporal uh, problems if we keep on in a life of sin, if we do not accumulate or accommodate ourselves to the will of God. And to obtain his blessings, we have to apply this faith. In chapter 2, verse 12, remember we covered this last week, chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and so act. There's this idea that we apply our faith to the life around us, to the life we're living out. So speak and do. And James picks up on this. He says if someone says, in, in, uh, but he does not do anything in the way of application of what he believes. And then uh, he picks that up again in verse 16. The point of 2.14 is that born-again people need not only to say what they believe, they need to apply what they believe. And that's James's whole point in this. Live out what you say you believe, and uh, that they would do that. In James 2.17, faith without works is dead. It proves that the issue is productivity of faith, not the existence of faith. Just because we say something is dead doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And those who take this portion, portion of Scripture uh, as non-faith, if you don't have works, you don't have faith, they are wrong because you have to have something before you don't have a living thing or animated energy. And I used the example one time of a car without a fuel in it is dead, isn't it? It doesn't run, it doesn't start, it is not profitable, is not useful. And no one would say a car without gasoline is not a car. Nobody would say that. Yet people oddly claim that James is saying that faith without application is not faith. And that is not what James is saying here because he is addressing those who are believers what does it profit? Notice, what use is it in verse 14? He repeats that down the end of verse 16. What use is that? He uses a hypothetical situation to illustrate it in verses 15 and 16. You know, if a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what uh, is necessary for the body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The issue is the usefulness of our faith and not the existence of faith. Because these people that he's addressing were already believers. They've expressed it. They have placed their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the, the use, existence of faith, but it's the usefulness. He is challenging us that our, fla- our faith must have uh, uh, shoes, essentially. We must walk in our faith. Secondly, in verses 18 through 20, this is the faith works challenge and the rebuttal. This is probably the most disputed portion of Scripture in the New Testament. And if uh, you read commentaries or look up different devotionals, you will get all sorts of different answers to this. I think in order to be consistent, we need to understand, and on the back of your bulletin insert, I've included this, what the format is in James. And it's called a literary device, and it's called a diatribe or an argument. And there's New Testament examples. Paul uses that, and I won't belabor this, but in your copy of Scripture, uh, when James says in verse 18, but someone may well say, what he's doing is he's anticipating somebody who's going to disagree with his position. And so every good teacher wants to anticipate uh, questions and anticipate arguments that would be coming. And so James says he, he builds this hypothetical character, if someone may well say. And so what is the quotation? What is this someone saying and where does their quotation end? Depending upon your version of Scripture, uh, your version may have quotation marks at the end of uh, you have faith and I have works. Stop uh, with quotation marks. And that's what someone says. Others will carry it further. It depends on your version. The difficulty lies in the original Greek manuscripts, which James wrote and which uh, existed in the early church, the copies of those manuscripts. There was no punctuation in the Greek manuscripts. And so our editors of our translations, of our versions, uh, basically betray themselves and their theology by uh, inserting the punctuation where they think it should go. And they have good reasons for doing that. But I believe and I teach that uh, the someone, the objector, if you will, is speaking. The quotation mark should end at the end of verse 19. So the objector is speaking to the second half of verse 18. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you dwell. The demons also believe and shudder, In quotes. And I believe it's based upon the fact this diatribe literary device where it's also the Apostle Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 9. And without doing that, if you don't attribute it to this, this figure or this uh, structure, this grammatical structure, then it creates all sorts of problems. And there's explanation on the back of that. But I believe that the someone, the uh, hypothetical objector to James's position, goes through verse 19. And so this is his argument. Uh, Even on the best of days, as we read these verses, this quotation, these verses from the someone who may well say, or the objector, uh, the more you read it, it may seem more confusing. But basically, what he is doing, the objector is reducing the argument to the absurd. For instance... 
The objector is saying, you can no more start with what you believe and show it to me by your works than I can start with my works and demonstrate what it is I believe. Uh, The objector is confident that both tasks are impossible. And so he's reducing his argument to the absurd, and he illustrates his point in verse 19, talking about demons uh, who believe the same thing as men, but faith does not produce the same response. So he thinks he is sealing his argument, and he talks about demons. And by the way, demons believing here, it's the same root word for faith, both belief in the English and faith in the English come out of the same root Greek word. It's not two different words. It's not two stages of belief. Uh, by the way, let me back up just a hair here. In this passage, in James, the word faith, the English word faith, is uh, used 16 different times. Eleven of those times is in this paragraph in chapter two, fourteen through 26. So you can see the emphasis just by the repetition of the word is on faith. What is faith? And now some approach this as there's different kinds of faith, you know. Uh, there's, there's, there's all these different kinds of faith, and they'll often cite the demons here in verse 19. Also up in verse 14, can that faith save him? Uh, I don't know what your scripture says. Some, some scriptures have that faith or this faith or such faith, uh, but that is a demonstrative pronoun that does not occur in the Greek manuscript. And so some build the whole case that there's different types of faith in Scripture, which there are not. Faith is faith. You are either fully persuaded or you are not persuaded about some object, whatever you place your faith in. And so uh, there is faith, and then there is no faith. And so he's saying, he's using, trying to use the, uh, the demons, but notice what they are believing in. They're not believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. They're believing in monotheism, that God is one. Of course, this would resonate with the Jewish people who are receiving this letter because their background is Judaism, and they're well acquainted with the Old Testament, and that is a monotheistic religion. And uh, so they, they would really recognize this. Yes, the object uh, <clears throat> of it is monotheism. That's an indisputable fact. And demons, even in Matthew eight twenty nine, recognize the deity of Christ. Let me read that verse for you. These are demons that he's casting out, and they cried out, saying, What business do we have with you, with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so they, these demons, of course, remember, demons are fallen angels, and they're created beings. God created them in time uh, before creation and time past. And uh, they know God very well because they rebelled against him. And Lucifer is their leader. And so Satan is their leader. And so uh, these demons know about God. And they know he exists. And they know in monotheism. But believing in monotheism is not salvific. In other words, you can't get saved just believing God is one. And so the demons, uh, their object of their belief is not enough because they don't Go to the next step. And, of course, uh, to compare demon belief and human belief is two different things. That's apples and oranges because fallen angels have no opportunity to be redeemed, no opportunity for salvation. They have been cast out of God's very presence. They were, they were with God. They saw him. They worshiped him, and then they rebelled, and so there's no more chance for them. But human beings are who Jesus came to save, John 6, 
47, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And he's talking about human beings. Faith is faith. There is not such a thing as a special kind of faith. If you believe in Jesus for everlasting life, what makes that faith saving is the object of what you're believing in. Your faith does not save you. It's the object, Jesus Christ, that brings you into salvation, that justifies you. And, you know, there are, there are and there will be people who are very orthodox in many points of theology. A person can believe in monotheism, Trinitarianism, premillennialism, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, and many other theological points, and yet still be trusting in their own works to get them to heaven. And that is a false gospel, by the way. In fact, a person can believe in the substitutionary death of Christ and still be unsaved. Did you understand that? and still be unsaved. Ask any devout Roman Catholic or Protestant who are trying to persevere in good works, and they'll use this very passage to prove that, that or try to prove what they think is they're doing. Uh, if, if you ask them if Jesus died for their sins, and they will respond with a heartfelt yes, yet many of those people are not truly trusting in Christ alone for everlasting life. They are trusting in Jesus plus their own perseverance in good works to make it. It is a sad, sad thing because they will be shocked when they are not in heaven with Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, written some years after the book of James, writes this thing, this whole deal. And he writes in Galatians chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as, as crucified? The only thing I want to find out from you is, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing from faith? It's by Christ alone, not Christ plus our good works, Christ plus whatever we think is going to get us to heaven. It is believing in Jesus for everlasting life. As Jesus said in John 6, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And so this whole argument by this someone in this passage, James answers him in verse 21, this is, or verse 20, excuse me, this is his rebuttal, and it goes on down to verse 23. In verse 21, he said, or verse 20, he said, and, but now he's responding, this is James talking, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He calls him a foolish fellow or an empty person. And so this is the rebuttal. This is the diatribe. And he's telling him that you have misunderstood the role of works in faith. Works are the response. They are not the energizer of faith. They are the response of faith that is energized by God. And so in this aspect, uh, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And James is rebutting him. And then he uses two illustrations to prove his point. Living faith is a productive faith. At the first part, he said, what use is it, in verses 14 and so on. He said, what use is it? Because there are people who believe much and do nothing. They're not allowing the, the works to show their faith and that they are believers, that they're growing spiritually. And in verses 21 through 26, he pulls out two Old, character, uh, Old Testament characters to prove his point. Living faith is productive faith. He goes back to a patriarch and a prostitute. 
Isn't that interesting? A patriarch, every, every Jewish person knows Abraham, not only Jewish, but Christians and, is, and, and Muslims, Islam. They trace their uh, lineage back to Abraham also. But these are examples of believing much and doing much. And he uses this as an example, and he addresses the objector in verses 21 through 23. He says, you see, and it's a singular, so he's still talking to this objector, this someone, and he says there, and the example number one is Abraham. Example number one is Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he's offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And he goes back to that great passage of Abraham exercising his faith, and he's following God and going to obey him. And because of that, Abraham is called the friend of God in Genesis 15, Romans 4, and uh, he is justified. Now, that gets confusing because we talk about justification, being declared righteous by believing in Jesus for everlasting life. That occurred for me when I was 28. And if you're a believer in Christ at some point, whether you can remember that exact point or not, but this is a different type of justification. There are two types of justification in Scripture. And this is where it gets a struggle for people trying to compare the Apostle Paul in Romans with James in this book of James. But there is a priority of faith and that's the legal declaration by God that the believer is righteous. That's what we talk about. When I am saved from the penalty of sin, when I believe in Jesus for everlasting life, that's that forensic legal declaration by God based on what Christ has done for me. It's not anything I have done. Okay, that's one understanding of justification. The other understanding of justification that James is using here in this passage is proof of our faith. Proof of our faith. It's demonstrated righteousness before men and women, others around us, leads to maturing and perfecting our faith. Both of these instances, Abraham, people knew what Abraham did. They celebrated that. It declared his faith in the righteous, holy God. It's a supreme test of faith. Even to this day, if you talk to observant Jews, they will talk about Abraham's supreme test as he was to offer his only son, this promised one, in his old age. He was to take him up on Mount Moriah and slaughter him and offer him to God as a sacrifice. And he was willing to do that. It was a justification before a watching world, and that's the world captured that and said, this man is righteous. Both James and both Paul uh, talk about Abraham uh, believed in God, and it was a credit to him as righteousness. Uh, back in Genesis. And so he was the supreme test, and he is his righteousness. He is justified not only back in Genesis for eternal life, but his justification in that sense, his testimony, his demonstrated righteousness before others, it, it leads to a maturing, perfecting of our faith. In verses 24 through 26, James turns his attention away from the someone and back to his audience because he goes into the plural in verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works and received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And so he goes back to Rahab who appears in the chronology, the, the genealogical chronology of Jesus Christ. And he's addressing them also. The other exemplar is Rahab, uh, the harlot in Jericho. Remember her when the nation of Israel was coming out of the wilderness? They're going to cross the Jordan. The first big barrier was Jericho. 
And that was the test of faith. And Joshua sent the spies in. And uh, Rahab was suited right here to fit James's argument. Uh, the passage began with a reference to his theme of saving life about salvation in this physical world. What happened to Rahab? She believed in God, and she and her family were physically rescued from the destruction of Jericho at the hands of God's people in that in Joshua chapter 2. And you can read about that. I read that again this morning. What a fascinating passage that is. But not surprisingly, Rahab is selected, whose physical life was saved uh, by her faith in that sense, Uh, She received the spies. James, by contrast, points that she sent them out by another way. Isn't that interesting that James focuses on that part of the story? Uh, Because the people of Jericho were looking. They knew the spies were around. They were looking for them. And she sent them out another way. Why did James do that? Why does he emphasize that here in this passage? The answer has considerable significance to James's argument in this passage. Let me quote one commentator on this, where he says, although Rahab's faith began to operate the moment she received these messengers, she could not really be justified by works until she sent them out another way. In other words, her righteousness did not show up. She could have uh, tricked uh, the spies and turned them in to her people there in Jericho. But uh, it goes on, I'll quote again this commentator, this is obvious when the story in Joshua 2 is carefully considered Up until the last minute, she could have betrayed the spies. Had she so desired, she could have sent the pursuers after them. That the spies had lingering doubts about her loyalty is suggested by their words in Joshua chapter 2, verse 20, where they say, and if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from our oath. Remember, she had them make an oath that she would put a scarlet uh, cord out her window and they would know that everybody in that house would be saved. They would not destroy them when they destroyed the city. Uh, But the successful escape of the spies demonstrated that Rahab was truly a friend of God because she was also their friend. And this way, Rahab was justified. Her righteousness was lived out before a watching world. And we are the recipients of that justification today that we can look back at Rahab and say her, her faith was lived out. She had shoe leather on her faith in God, in the God of Israel. She saved her own life and her family's life. Her faith, therefore, was very much alive because it was an active faith. It was not a useless faith, as uh, James is exhorting us in the first part of that. Though she was a prostitute, and uh, both writers remind us of that, her living faith triumphed over natural consequences of her sin. While all the rest of the inhabitants of of Jericho perished under divine judgment, she lived because her faith lived. Faith is the basis of being declared righteous by God, that legal declaration. Works serve as a barometer of that previous act. Works are a barometer. They tell how hot or cold we are. Verse 26, we don't want any useless orthodoxy. Look at verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, when there is a dead body, a corpse, we don't say that there's no person because there's no life. We say, yes, this this was a person, but there is no animating energy there any longer. And so someone who can believe in Jesus for everlasting life, the Corinthians are a fine example of that, and never don't have any good works to follow that up, 
uh, they have a dead faith. There's no animating energy, even though they are believers in Jesus Christ and have everlasting life. They are in danger of, uh, of, of God's wrath in that sense because they are not living in the will of God. They're living in sin. And so James wishes all of us to know that works are, in fact, the vitalizing spirit that keeps our faith alive. And when you think about it, in the same way, our human spirit keeps our human bodies alive There's because we're spirit, soul, and physical body. And whenever Christians cease to act on our faith, the faith atrophies and becomes little more than a creedal corpse. And we see that in what we would call dead churches, people who say they name the name of Christ, believe in Christ, but there's nothing that shows that their belief is a living, active animated faith. And it's vital as long as it's translated into living obedience. Our belief should result in behavior consistent with Christ's likeness. Now, remember the two paths that we started on. Now, if you're a rules person and you think, well, these things I don't do, these things I do do, and I've got this transaction going with God, then this is going to be a burden for you. This will be a big burden. But if you are in an eternal attitude of gratitude because of what God has done in your life, what Jesus Christ has done, then we will allow him to work in and through us. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to work through our lives. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, later Paul writes, remember that we know this passage so well, for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, speaking of initial justification, not as a result of works that no one may boast, But we tend to forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, notice who, where they come from, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I think all of us would have stories of having that point of decision where we say, I should really do this. This is, you know, it's almost a, you're being impelled and it's an impulse that, Uh, God is directing you to do a good work. It's because he's prepared them beforehand. That's why I pray that all of us would have eyes to see what God has prepared beforehand for us. Maybe some very surprising things. James challenges believers to put their faith to work rather than working to prove their faith. There's a question uh, that uh, sometimes I contemplate, and when we think of funerals and memorial services, uh, what do you want said at your funeral? And I was reading an article about some guys hanging out one day, and the conversation turned grimly to final things, the issue of death. And one of the friends asked the others, what would you like people to say at your funeral? And one of the friends said, I would like people to say that he was a great humanitarian who cared about his community. Yeah, that's good. The second guy said, I want people to say he was a great husband and father, an example for many to follow. Yeah, who wouldn't want that said? The third guy, he said, give it some thought. He was kind of quiet. And then he said, I would hope someone says, look, he's moving. (laughs) That's animation. That is, you know, that is living, isn't it? And we want our faith to be moving faith. There's a Christian hip-hop artist. I was not aware with him until I read this thing from him. Princeton Marcellus. Some of you may know him. I don't. Uh, I saw there are lots of YouTube videos if you're into hip-hop. Uh, but he said, this is a quote of his. He said, my faith is dead if it doesn't make me move. If it doesn't make me move. 
And that sounds pretty profound, except I think he got it out of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch walked. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, Isaac offered. By faith, Moses refused. By faith, the people marched. By faith, Rahab hid. Some saw great victories. Others suffered and were sawn sawn in two. Some withstood the fire while others hid in caves. Some escaped the sword while others died by the sword. But they were all approved by God in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because their faith moved them to action. Active faith releases God's power. Passive faith is dead, useless, and empty. May we be a people who are on the move. May we have people who are recognizing and sensitive to what God's got for for us. And for each one of us, it may look different. There's no formula. There's no uh, model of this is how you got to do it. Just read Hebrews 11 and all those saints. And they were used by God differently, but yet by faith they moved. And we want to be a people who move in God's grace, God's power, and God's timing. Heavenly Father, thank you.